This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning, and uh, welcome to Denkoei Session. Denko means transmission of light, and A is assembly, that's us, and Seshin is to gather the mind, collect the mind together in one suchness. Collecting the mind in one suchness and celebrating the transmission of light, which is our lineage of Buddhas and ancestors, lineage of freedom and ease, clarity and peace. Particularly as celebrated by our ancestor Keizan Zenji's record of transmitting the light, the Denko Roku. So it's a Sashin, which means plenty of Zazen, and Denko A is kind of like a study Sashin, means we have be longer talks and two talks a day exploring these uh, stories of our lineage ancestors and the comments on them by Keizan Zenji. So these old stories are sometimes strange and uh, they're not the way we usually describe zazen or practice Uh, so it's sometimes may feel like learning a new language hearing these old zen stories and i think that's part of the reason for doing this is we're learning we're learning the, the ancient language of our tradition through these old zen stories are there easier ways to talk about how things are than these ancient ancestors did? Probably so. But uh, we can do that some other time. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully we can weave in some um, easier ways to say it along with these stories, but we're trying to do this work, uh, arouse some energy and effort to... uh, try to understand what the, what the ancestors of our lineage were saying so that we keep the lineage alive because that's the way that they talk so we're, we're learning a little of their language. Uh, but before we jump into that, some words about zazen since there's a lot of zazen this week and uh, you all have a zazen practice so um, if you trust your zazen please um, practice in such a way that you feel good about. And maybe I'll just say a few words about it 
anyway to kind of add to your add to your trust and feeling good about it. Uh, first of all, it's good to um, find a relatively comfortable way to sit because we're sitting a lot, and uh, it shouldn't be uh, unnecessarily painful and uncomfortable. So that means um, arranging your legs in a way that will support you. Naturally, we're, we're sitting still for a long time. The legs, back, maybe um, the shoulders, the body might be uncomfortable in various ways. That's just normal. That's the, the flavor of sashim. But if it's really uncomfortable, um, to the point of like, all that's happening is, is intense physical pain and, and just trying to manage it, it's this too much, I'd say. Uh, see, if, see if you can find a more comfortable way. You can always sit in a chair if your leg, any kind of cross-legged or kneeling posture becomes too much. Chair is an excellent way to sit with comfortable legs. Ideally, the upper body is the same in any um, sitting posture, which is basically upright in a way that we're not fighting gravity, so we're balanced. We're not leaning forward or backward, side to side. And then once the, once the spine is basically upright, then let everything drop and just hang off this pillar that we call the spine. Our shoulders just hanging loosely off that. Our head just balanced loosely on top. Our eyes open just a little, looking down at the wall and the floor, uh, staying awake and present, and then letting the breath settle into the lower belly which it naturally does when we're relaxed, but we can, we can guide it uh, down there to its home. Breathing in the, in the lower abdomen, very delicious kind of breath. When we're anxious, the breath is in the upper lungs. When we're relaxed, it settles down into the belly, or so it feels. Enjoying the flow of relaxed breath. And then uh, remaining in the present as much as we can. When our mind goes to past and future thinking uh, and we notice it, return to the simplicity of this simple, relaxed, upright posture and the simple flow of uh, relaxed upright breath. And then some, some further words on Zazen as sponsored by this week's ancestor Keizan Zenji, since we're looking at his commentary this week. Uh, here's some words about Zazen from Keizan's essay called uh, Zazen Yojinki, points to watch in Zazen or points to keep in mind during Zazen, or guidelines for Zazen. Keizan lived in the uh, 14th century in Japan, and uh, he's one of our lineage founders, along with Dogen Zenji. 
So he wrote the Zazen manual called Zazen Yodinki. And the very first sentence is Zazen means. Okay, so we're wondering what Zazen means. <laughs> it begins Zazen means to clarify the mind ground, the ground of mind, and dwell comfortably in your true nature. This is kind of summary of Zazen, sitting meditation. Zazen means to clarify the ground of mind, basis of mind, the source of mind, the ground from which everything comes forth, called big mind. This is one of these Zen phrases that gets used in the, the tradition, the mind ground. It's like a, like a field, of, a fertile field, that kind of ground, from which all kinds of experiences can sprout freely. What is the ground of mind from which all mental and physical experiences can sprout? It is just this basic knowing presence that we all share. We're all hearing these words and these chainsaws and we're seeing the sights of this room and we're feeling sensations in the body. These are all types of knowing, types of presence, types of basic awareness. The content's constantly changing. Sometimes the chainsaw stops Sometimes uh, the thoughts slow down. Sometimes the thoughts are obsessively churning. Sometimes the physical sensations are pleasant. Sometimes they're painful. That's all the content of mind. But the, the ground of mind is always the same. Just present knowing awareness. It's not even located anywhere in space or in time. It's just ordinary present awareness. When we look for when it began or how it will end, we can't find such things. It's always, it's always just present, ordinary knowing. And when we look for, is it located inside our skull or inside this body or somewhere over there? If we, if we examine, we find it's not actually located anywhere. It's like space. That's what Kazan says later in this essay. Clear water has no front or back. Space has no inside or outside. Describing Rosazan. He says, This is revealing your true self and manifesting the original ground. True self for Kazan is another name for this 
present, ordinary, knowing awareness. Kazan says, Zazen is dropping off body and mind. So dropping off um, any ideas of this body is myself and these thoughts are myself. It's letting go of all that and just um, opening to that this spacious presence, this unlocated, vast space, bright knowing space, is our actually, is our true self. That's one way to understand dropping off body and mind as a limited version of our true self. And this Zazen, Keizan says, transcends distinctions between ordinary people and sages, between deluded and awakened sentient beings and Buddhas. It goes beyond these differences. In other words, this present knowing awareness, like space, is exactly the same for ordinary sentient beings like us and for the greatly awakened Buddhas. The ground of mind is the same, exactly identical. Well, is there any difference between the Buddhas and sentient beings? Maybe we could say the difference is that the, the ordinary sentient beings um, identify with their body and mind as their true self, and the Buddhas are, wa are watching this appearance of body and mind, but they're not identified with it. They're, their true self is this boundless space, boundless knowing space, the ground of mind. Sentient beings think the content of mind is themselves, and Buddhas understand that the ground of mind is themselves. So Kazan says, therefore, put aside all affairs and let go of all associations. So all the stuff that we're thinking about, the affairs of our life, in Sashin, as much as we can, um, we can let go of the rest of our life and just um, enter this unique world of Sashin. Put aside all the affairs of our ordinary life as much as we can and uh, let go of all associations and thinking about other times and places. And as Kazan says, do nothing at all. But aren't we at least like trying to sit in a certain posture and breathe in the belly? Aren't we cooking some meals and eating some meals? Aren't we standing when the, um, when the bell rings and walking and kinging? Those sound like doing something. But Kazan uh, says, do nothing at all. So uh, again, we could, we could understand that the, the content of mind is doing all kinds of stuff throughout the day, but the ground of mind is not doing anything. It's like the space that fills the room, and fills the universe. The space is not really doing anything, right? but the, within the space, there's all kinds of activity happening. So it's okay if some activity happens within the space, but 
Kazan is saying, be like space, be this space, um, and this, this space that isn't, is doing nothing at all. And it helps to simplify um, the, the content too. That's what we do in Sashi, we simplify the content. Like we just sit here and we don't have to do much else. There is some other stuff happening, like walking and eating and uh, cleaning up and so on, but we do a lot of um, simple sitting. But I would understand when we hear, do nothing at all is be, be that space that is never doing anything at all. Even when the person is doing some activity, the space of present knowing awareness isn't doing anything at all. So we can we can explore that and um, clarify that ground of mind. Ground that's not doing anything at all. You still here okay? They're they're like they're shredding trees across the street. They think that they're doing something, but uh, actually the space in which the tree shredding is happening is doing nothing at all. Within this non-doing space, sound appears and colors appear and bodily sensations appear and they will continue to appear in this human realm. But there's, um, there's a knowing, empty space, always present for all of us, equally the same for all of us, and it's doing nothing at all. And we're, we can align our human experience with this ordinary, spacious awareness that's just present with sound, present with sights, and doesn't do anything. It's already not doing anything. Our human experience can align more and more with the realm that's not doing anything. So that's a little bit of positive instruction from Kazan in practice this week, if you'd like. Deng Koe Sashin is um, exploring these stories from the Denko Roku, the transmission of light record. Transmission of light record um, is, a, is a collection of uh, stories of our Zen ancestors, starting with Shakyamuni Buddha, about, who lived about 2,500 years ago, and then his disciple Mahakashapa, his disciple Ananda, through all these 28 Indian ancestors, up through Bodhidharma, who brought Zen from India to Japan, and uh, all the Chinese Zen ancestors of our particular lineage, up through Dogen, and Dogen's disciple Ejo, and that's where this record ends. And Ejo uh, was 
Kazan, the author's kind of Dharma grandfather. Kazan received the precepts from Ejo, so it's one of his teachers. So he, he leaves it off there. But we'll chant at morning service the names, like we did this morning, the names of these ancestors. <clears throat> Going back before Shakyamuni Buddha, the seven ancient Buddhas are very ancient. So Shakyamuni Buddha taught that even before he became a Buddha, there were ancient Buddhas before him. So we chant those names too. And we like this morning we chanted through Kazan, the author of this record. And then uh, after Kazan, he continues to transmit the light through uh, many um, Japanese ancestors. Sometimes we chant those names too, all the way up to the founder of this temple, to Suzuki Roshi and uh, Zenke Blanche Hartman, this temple's founder, and um, to the present generation of uh, ancestral teachers. So this, this is a living lineage from the ancient Buddhas up to today. And, uh, and this, this collection of stories is the stories of, of these pivotal moments for these ancestors. They're, they're, um, they're awakening to the way, celebrating their, their awakening to the way, and then the, the confirmation by their teacher, and generation after generation like this. And these stories uh, are in the old Chinese Zen records, and uh, Keizan Zenji in 14th century Japan collected together these stories from the old Chinese records and then wrote or spoke his own commentaries on them. And that's what we're getting into today. Keizan, Joking, Daiyosho, was born in 1264 in uh, Fukui Prefecture in Japan, which is where AAD currently functions as the as the um, head monastery, one of the head monasteries of, of our Soto Zen lineage in Japan, and uh, it's right near. So so Keizan grew up right near where Dogen lived, this, this area of western Japan. And uh, as they did sometimes in the old days and sometimes in present day in Japan, he, uh, he left home as a kind of novice monk at age 12. Not so common in America, but uh, uh, I think in modern Japan still, uh, children who are born into temple families have a kind of novice ordination, maybe uh, at that age or as teenagers. <clears throat> and um, and he received the precepts, like we still receive the precepts now, um, from Kohun Ejo, the, the last teacher that he comments on in this book. It was Dogen's disciple. So, um, Keizan never met Dogen, 
Dogen had already died before Kei-san was born, but Kei-san met Dogen's disciple Ko and Ejo. And, uh, and then later, um, I can't remember when Ejo died, he was probably quite old when he gave the precepts to young Kei-san. After Ejo died, uh, Kei-san studied with his student, Tetsu Gikai Daiosho. One of our ancestors, and uh, later, Keizan would become the successor of Tetsugikai. <clears throat> so he practiced with him uh, for about five years, which is which is a kind of a traditional time to practice with one's teacher after ordination. It's nice, if possible, to practice closely with one's teacher for at least five years. And then he went on pilgrimage to visit other teachers, as was the tradition. He practiced with Jakuen at Hokyoji, which is a temple nearby. And Jakuen was a, like a Dharma brother of Dogen. They practiced together in China under the same teacher. And Keizan practiced with the Rinzai teacher, Kakushin, and uh, also learned um, Vajrayana, Japanese we call Shingon. Is, um, Shingon means mantra. So the mantra Yana, he learned from this Rinzai teacher. So there were lots of different practices going on in, um, in Buddhist Japan, the time of Keizan. And he also practiced um, on Mount Hie, the, the uh, headquarters of the Tendai school. So, so Young Keizan practiced with Soto and Rinzai Zen teachers, and um, also their Shingon Mantra school, and also Tendai school. So he really explored Dharma on this pilgrimage, traveling around to different teachers. And then, after all this travel, he went back to Eheji, where he continued to practice with his his uh, teacher Tetsu Gikai, and then when Gikai left Eheji and moved to Daijoji, another temple, Keizan followed him there, and he was the attendant, the Jisha for um, Gikai. And um, at age 30, so he'd been practicing um, 28 years already, right? He was ordained already for 28 years, because he started young. So, um, no, is that right? 20, no, 18, 18 years. He, uh, he was ordained at age 12, and then at age 30, 18 years later, he had this awakening, a shift of perspective about how things are. When he heard this phrase, this old Zen phrase, ordinary mind is the way. Maybe he'd heard it before, because it's a classic old Zen phrase, but when he heard it this time from his teacher, something shifted. Ordinary mind is the way. And a year after that, uh, Keizan inherited the Dharma from his teacher Gikai and became uh, a successor, a lineage holder uh, in the Soto Zen lineage. And he went then to teach elsewhere, Jomanji, 
and then he came back to Daijoji because his his aging teacher was dying, so he came back to help um, assist him at that time. And uh, this was now in 1300. Keizan was 36, and he's his teacher's kind of retired. I think in the retired dying process at uh, Daijoji Temple, and um, Keizan is starting to teach more there. And this is the year that he teaches this, the transmission of light record. Uh, so his teacher, Gikai, is still alive, but kind of retired, I think, at this point. And they're at the same temple. And then a year after he taught this, he transmitted the Dharma to his student, Gassanjo Seki, who's in our lineage also. And then the year after that, he, he became the abbot of Daijoji. After Gikai died, Keizan then turned over Daijoji to one of his successors, and he founded like four new Zen monasteries. So Keizan kind of, he was trying to spread this new way, I think he's, he's traveling around Japan, starting these new temples, like Jojuji, Yokoji, Kokoji, and Sojiji. So Gigi is the, currently the, the kind of co-head monastery of Soto Zen in Japan. So Keizan's temple and Dogen's temple are these two kind of head temples that all the other Soto Zen temples, tens of thousands of Soto Zen temples, smaller ones throughout Japan and the world, such as this one, they're all kind of branches of these two, one of these two head temples. And uh, one thing that Keizan is known for is he um, had quite a few women students and disciples and successors. So Zen was a new thing in Japan. Uh, it's a, it was less than a century old, and um, mostly it was men who brought it, Zen over from China to Japan. But, um, but uh, women were practicing with Keizan, and he was really supporting their practice. And his, when we recite the names of the women ancestors, four of them are Keizan's disciples. So Ekyu, Acharya Ekyu, is the um, first woman to receive Dharma transmission in the Soto Zen lineage in Japan as a student of Keizan. Eikan, is uh, another Dharma successor who is actually Keizan's mother and then received Dharma transmission from her son, Keizan. Um, and then she um, started a women's community. Um, Mokufusonian is another successor of Keizan, was one of his main donors as a, um, a lay woman, wealthy lay patron built some of his monasteries, and then later she got ordained and became a successor. And Myosho Enkan um, is Keizan's cousin, also became a successor. So um, I think that's a wonderful thing to celebrate about Dogen, and then those women's lineages spread around in Japan, and various political conditions happened, and many of them didn't continue. And, uh, but now in America, we're sprouting forth um, 
women's lineages in Kazan's lineage many generations later. So, uh, to paint this picture a little bit more of this um, time, in 1300, so during Kazan's life, there were only, this was, and this is a hundred years after Dogen was born. So, um, still, Zen is a kind of a new movement in Japan, but it's been, it's been, you know, Dogen died 50 years earlier. So in 1300, there were only four Soto Zen monasteries or temples in Japan. So, this, I think monasteries and temples were like the same thing. I'm not sure about this, but um, I think that there weren't this, this concept of like small village temples, like the, there's thousands of now in Japan. I think at this time that hadn't started yet. I'm not sure, but that that's be my understanding. So these four Soto Zen temples in Japan, 50 years after Dogen died. So we might say that um, the American Soto Zen movement is growing more quickly <laughs> than it did in Kazan's time. Kind of looks like, which is kind of strange because it was a Buddhist country in Japan. So there, there were there were thousands and thousands of Buddhist temples, but this new little Zen movement was a, grew slowly. And I guess if we say that these were, the, these were monasteries where people were practicing full-time uh, ordained monks and nuns, in that case, I guess in America, there's maybe just a handful of such places, kind of full-time monasteries. There's maybe less than 10 in America, um, 50 years after... Suzuki Roshi died. So maybe similar. I, I think it's interesting to paint this picture because it's a similar time in Japan for Zen as it is in America now for Zen. <clears throat> so 1300, there were just these four, um, all in the countryside, uh, northeast of Kyoto. And they are Eiheiji, that Dogen founded, Hokyoji, that Dogen student Jakuen founded, and these are still thriving um, Zen monasteries. Daijoji, that Tetsugikai founded, and Daigiji, that Giin, another um, student of Dogen, founded um, in the Kyushu, the southern island. And there were just a handful of Rinzai Zen monasteries also at that time. And uh, so, as I mentioned, it was Keizan in his kind of middle of his life, taught this Denka Roku, and it was talks that he gave. He didn't write it all out. There were Dharma talks like this. Um, and um, maybe about uh, what they guess now is that probably about three to six talks a month, maybe like once a week, weekly Dharma talk at uh, Daijoji, Keizan would pick up one of these stories from the Zen ancestors and give a talk about it to the assembly. <clears throat> so it took him to get through these 53 ancestors. It took him uh, um, maybe a year to a year and a half to teach the Denkaroku, giving him around one talk a week. So this was extended um, over time in... Uh, 
beginning in 1300. Any questions on that kind of historical background? Yes. How come uh, Hakeisan did not write about the Enlightenment story of uh, Tetsu Akikai? Oh, yeah, it's a good question. How come he didn't write the Enlightenment story of his teacher, Tetsu Akikai? Yeah, some people theorize about that in, this, in the commentaries and say um, he could have, but uh, I think one theory is that because Tetsu Akikai was still alive when he gave these talks, it was more like too close to home or something or, or um, just out of respect for his living teacher we're just going to talk about the deceased ancestors so he could have and there is a great story of Tetsu Kikai's awakening and um, and Keizan's awakening too so yeah. it would be nice if, if the story is extended to Keizan so um I've been talking about these Denko Roku stories myself for a decade or so and um, filling in the gaps, trying to get through all the ancestors. But um, based on that feeling of we should, we should tell Gikai's and Keizan's awakening stories too, I've kind of added those in to the, to the commentaries. And so like on my website where the recordings, if you're interested in hearing other ancestor stories, it Instead of ending with Edio, uh, I added in Gikai and Keizan stories, which are good stories. And then we have a story of um, Gasan Joseki. And then after that, interestingly, things start to get more obscure. We know all our ancestors from Gasan up to Suzuki Roshi, uh, who brought Zen to America. We know all their names and where they lived and their dates. We have that much of the records. And a few stories here and there, but this thing of recording these pivotal moment awakening stories seems to maybe go out of fashion <laughs> around this time, after Keizan, or after Dasan, anyway. Suzanne uh, was spreading and the lineages were all branching out and... Um, Records got lost, and um, yeah, so we don't have these we don't have these colorful stories all the way up to Suzuki Roshi. Suzuki Roshi tells some nice stories, but uh, in between there aren't so many. Yeah. Yes. I was just curious. In the Shinji tradition, do they practice deity yoga? In Shingon. 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 Uh, means mantra. True word is the way of translating the word mantra. Do they practice deity yoga like in, in uh, Tibetan Vajrayana? Um, yes, they do. I mean, in the sense that, um, yeah, there's, there's Buddhas that are visualized and, um, um, and then offerings are ritually made to them and uh, and those Buddhists have mantras, individual mantras. So um, it's the, for those who know, um, Tibetan Vajrayana is the, um, or, you know, Tantra is another name for Vajrayana. The, um, and this all came from India. So the India Tantra, Buddhist Tantra evolved over many centuries, kind of 
from the 8th to 11th centuries in India and then um, of course was transmitted to China and then to Japan as the Shingon school and also to Tibet and the um, a so-called like later tantras, the higher tantras that were more and more like radical. Those ones, because of political conditions and timing and so on, those ones are, are made it to Tibet and were really emphasized in Tibet up to up to today. And um, because the earlier tantra tradition was transmitted to China and Japan earlier. When the later ones started evolving in India, for some reason, maybe people weren't traveling back and forth between India and China, or they felt like they had so much already, they didn't need any more. So, so there's a lot of the um, Vajrayana tradition is the same in Japan and Tibet, but some of, but there's more of it in Tibet. So like de- deity yoga, where you visualize yourself as a deity, that's kind of the highest tantras, where you are a Buddha. That, I'm not sure if, that, if they practice that in Japan. The lower tantras are like, you're a little bit separate from a Buddha. And then as it, as it gets higher and higher, you become closer and closer to the Buddha until you become one with the Buddha. Uh, and so... Um, it might not, they might not talk about it that way in Shingon, I'm not sure. And like a little bit separate from the Buddha, and you make, then you can make offerings to the Buddha in front of you, rather than make offerings to yourself, which is, in the higher tantras, is what you do. So, um, so, that, uh, so people, pretty much the scholars, pretty much agree that this was really was spoken by Kazan and then recorded. And then there were these manuscripts like floating around for a long time. So this Denko Roku transmission of light record was not published in Japan until, remember it was spoken in the year 1300. It wasn't published until 1857. Very strange, right? Same with Dogen's great Shogogenzo. It wasn't published until much more recently. So these almost were like secret manuscripts in, hidden in temple storerooms in Japan um, for many centuries. And the abbots of those temples could look at them, but they weren't like public texts, it looks like. And uh, very strange, I think. So I'm not sure, again, all the conditions for why that was so. But then when, the, when just, you know, pretty recent times, when this was published and the Shogogenzo of Dogen were published, people were like, wow, this stuff is great. This is great Zen Dharma. And then it became, then it spread everywhere and started getting printed and translated into English and all of this. So... But it was kind of maybe a hidden text until somewhat recently. Not so well known. And now it's quite well known. So Dogen and Keizan are considered the kind of co-founders of Soto Zen, our lineage, in Japan. They were four generations apart. But they um, each had a unique style. Dogen's masterwork of writing, the Shogogenzo, the True Dharma Eye Treasury, much longer than this, is um, very popular and 
translated into English, of course. And um, Keizan's Denkoroku is, is the main work of, of Keizan. So the Shobogenzo Odogen and the Denkoroku of Keizan are like the two kind of, can we say like Bibles of Soto Zen, like the main lineage texts that like really um, express the style of this lineage. So that's why we're talking about it. And uh, to understand our lineage more and more deeply. And uh, Keizan and Dogen were slightly different. Keizan's style This is, this is the introduction by Francis Cook. I, I like this part, read many times, but um, uh, I think it's a good summary of so-called Keizan Zen as compared to Dogen Zen. They're both part of our, equally part of our Soto Zen heritage. Uh, <clears throat> so, um, the focus of these chapters in this record is the light in the title, Transmission of Light. <clears throat> and it's this light that's transmitted from teacher to disciple as the disciple discovers the light within herself. That's what the transmission is. is uh, the teacher is trying to convey something about the light and the student discovers it, realizes or verifies their own light that's, at least that's what Francis Cook is saying, is the transmission. But it, so it happens in this relationship. And uh, the light is the ground of mind. Right? The, uh, the empty, spacious, bright, clear, um, always okay, always free, um, non-doing presence. Ordinary mind. You might say, well, isn't that pretty easy to discover? Deeply, deeply um, verify it in the midst of all kinds of situations <laughs> and uh, stabilize the verification uh, is part of the process. So, <clears throat> in fact, once the light is discovered, Francis Cook says, this is the transmission. The light is one's Buddha nature or true self with an English capital S, self. So um, in Zen, they can use this word true self. You probably have heard the Buddhist teaching, not self. This body is not self. This, these feelings are not self. This, these conceptions are not self. These perceptions are not self. These, these habitual tendencies are not self. Even this um, dualistic consciousness that knows the world of objects, this is not self, the Buddha said over and over again. And he never said there is a true self in the early teachings, but later Mahayana sutras start using this word true self. It's, in other words, it's not body and mind, the conventional body and mind we think of and we think with. So, uh, it's called Buddha nature. And Keizan uses a number of striking and provocative 
epithets and titles for this true self, including, and he's going to list some that Kazan uses in this book, including true self, <laughs> is a term Kazan uses, that one, that person, the old fella, <laughs> the lord of the house, so um, these, very, these kind of saying that there's some, some essence, some ground, some nature that is who we really are rather than just its emptiness. Right? These are all kind of positive expressions. And then uh, Francis Cook says, such language is uncommon in Dogen's writings as is the focus on discussing the existence and nature of this old fella. But that is part of what constitutes Kazan Zen as distinct from Dogen Zen. You follow that? These positive expressions of like true self and the lord of the house and um, Buddha nature as um, the ground of mind. This is kind of Kazan's over and over he's expressing in this way, which I really appreciate. And Dogen is a little bit more, we might say, conservative. He, um, he sometimes uses those words also, but um, Dogen's, I think, trying to pull away any way we could get a hold of anything. And Kazan's not so afraid of that. You try to get a hold of this true self, um, go ahead, because you can't really get a hold of it, and it's who you really are, and it, it must be verified directly and it's shining presently in and as each of us. This is a kind of style of, of uh, Kazan Zen. And uh, all the stories are great in here, so we could pick up any one. But as I say, you know, I've just been kind of going through these stories. I like to look at them line by line, look at the Japanese, look at the other English translations. And um, so there's just a few out of these 52 stories. I think there's, there's 10 that um, I haven't thoroughly studied myself. So those are the ones that I'm choosing <laughs> for this week. Uh, let's maybe read through five. We have five days. We can talk about five Indian ancestors. So... We could start and end anywhere here, so but that's where I'm thinking is just for my own sake. I appreciate the chance to talk with you all about these ancestors, and these are the these are ones that um, I haven't done this yet with. Uh, so um, thought we could talk start with the um, seventh Indian ancestor, Vasumitra. When we chant the name, we say Vasumitsu in Japanese. Vasumitra was an actual historical Indian person. And uh, so this, these Indian ancestors of Zen, it's hard to know about the historical legitimacy 
of these actual names of these ancestors going back between Shakyamuni Buddha and Bodhidharma, all these Indian ancestors. Were these, sto- were these stories recorded like just after the Buddha's time up to today? If they were, they didn't really appear in the world until later. Um, but kind of before Zen, I can't remember what century, but before the time of Bodhidharma, I think, or maybe around that time, maybe around that time, in China, there started to be some Mahayana sutras and other texts that talked about this kind of lineage from from Shakyamuni Buddha that was passed along through India up to that time. It wasn't it wasn't called Zen in these sutras and so on, but these ancestors then got kind of incorporated into the Zen tradition. So we do know that. Shakyamuni Buddha had a disciple named Mahakashapa. In the, the old Pali Sutras, he was one of the main, main students of the Buddha, Mahakashapa. We have stories about him and so on. And Ananda is another disciple of the Buddha. We have many stories about every time the sutra says, Thus have I heard, once the Blessed One was living in such and such place, that thus have I heard is attributed to Ananda, the Buddha student. So our lineage goes from Shakyamuni Buddha to Mahakashapa to Ananda. These are historical figures. And then Shanavasa. Um, there might be some stories about him. And then some of these names, maybe we don't have any records of these Indian ancestors. But some of them we do. Like Nagarjuna is very important in India. He's one of our ancestors, the 14th. And uh, Vasubandhu is a very important teacher in India. He's one of our ancestors. And then around this time, just before Bodhidharma, then we start having um, some recorded history again in, uh, in China. There's some early, early Zen texts that talk about a, this very early lineage leading up to Bodhidharma. And then the first six ancestors in China, up to the sixth ancestor of Huaynan, we um, we don't know that much about them, but we but we we knew that they lived and actually visited like the the temples of the fourth, fifth, and sixth ancestors in China, and their stupas where their remains are. So it looks like those ancestors were really historical people that met with each other. The second ancestor, Hueka, we know stories about him, but we, it was very, it was this new kind of like fringe movement in Japan, so a lot of this didn't get recorded, and I think this, the second ancestor didn't have a temple, the second and the third. So, um, but things around the time of when the Zen lineage begins in China, it becomes less lost in the, in the mytho- mythological clouds of time, more historical. Even starting around Bodhidharma. Indian ancestors, some of them are historical. Did they actually, was this a lineage? These records go pretty far back, but, um, but uh, scholars would say probably not, but the practitioners 
say, of course, <laughs> this is our living lineage. And Vasumitra, today's ancestor, it was a historical person and lived in like the second century in India. And that's around the time that fits into this story here. Because um, Nagarjuna was also somewhere in the second century, who is um, several generations later. So historically, they're getting they're getting some of these names right according to the modern scholarly interpretation. And Vasumitra is known for um, being one of the prominent teachers of the uh, Sarvastivada tradition. This is like before the Mahayana, or maybe around the time that the, that the Mahayana was arising, the great vehicle, this new, vast movement of vastness um, was arising. Around the same time, there were these kind of scholar practitioners that were really into Abhidharma, like... Um, Abhidharma is like these, are these maps of the mind, how the mind works, very complicated systems and lists and so on. Abhidharma uh, and the Sarvastivadins were an Abhidharma um, map-making um, kind of scholarly school. And um, within the Sarvastivada movement, there was this text called the Maha Vibhasha, it's this big Abhidharma compendium, and it means um, something like a, it means the the Maha Vibhasha is like the great compendium, literally, or the great explanation, and um, and Vasumitra was one of the writers of this Maha Vibhasha, and uh, and then the followers of this text became a sub-school of the Sarpastavadins called the Vibhashikas, based on the Maha Vibhasha treatise. So this is all like, you know, historical Indian Buddhism some centuries after the Buddha lived. And, uh, and the Sarvast, to, to kind of simplify the story, Sarvastavada, um, Sarva means all, and asti means like um, existence, and vada is like a school, like Theravada is the school of the elders. So Sarvastivada is the school that says that every thing, every like element of experience has a kind of true existence. So later we hear things like the Heart Sutra that say None of this exists. No, there is no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind. But the Sarvastivadins, before the Heart Sutra came along, said there is an eye, there is an ear. These these elements of experience that can't be broken down any further truly do exist. They have a kind of essential existence, and there's things called atoms that truly exist. Later, in the Mahayana, they, they start looking for atoms and they can't find any. They start breaking things down further and further. 
what, what we call an atom is just made up of parts and you can break down those parts further and further ad infinitum and not find anything at all any like building blocks of matter for example that we call atoms but the Sarvastivadins maybe Vasumitra in his early days um, like there are these atoms and then the things that are built out of atoms are not exactly real because you can break them down but the atoms you can't break them down any further that was the theory in the second century India. And also time. Time can be broken down into these tiny moments. And these moments, like the 64th of a second or something, can't be broken down any further. So they truly exist. These moments in time truly exist. And these atoms in space truly exist. And then you can make them into conglomerations of big expanse of time and big expanse of space spacious stuff that doesn't truly exist only because it's because it's conglomerations but it's made of stuff that truly exists if you could follow that story a little bit that's the Sarvastavada story and uh, <clears throat> and uh, Vasu Mitra was um, historically said if it's the same person said to be uh, one of the expounders of that school. So Kazan doesn't mention this at all, but I think it's an interesting way to look at this story is that he started off as a Sarvastivadin, and then when he meets his teacher, Mishaka, he kind of, um, he gets the rug pulled out from under him, the rug of, of atoms truly existing and moments of time truly existing. Could be like that. Just like Vasubandhu was um, kind of like had various different philosophical understandings in his early life, um, as I recall, he was also a Vaibhashika, like Vasumitra, and one of the Sarvastivadins, Vaibhashika, again, is this sub school of Sarvastivadins. Vasubandhu was. was um, believed their, their theories. And this very complicated theories, huge volumes, trying to understand what's going on here. <laughs> what is this world? And what is this mind? People, they wanted to know, and so they came up with more and more complex theories. Vasubandhu was one of them. And then later, he started talking with another sub-school of Sarvastivadins called the Sautrantika school. And kind of like, became more and more influenced and kind of like switched over. It's like, actually, I like you guys' theories better. They make more sense. So then Vasubandhu wrote this Abhidharma Kosha, this huge collection of of these maps of mind and maps of the world, and um, where he kind of like uses his new Sautrantika position to kind of refute his earlier views of the Vaibhashika position. So this, this is a philosophical debate that's been a, in, in ancient India especially. It was really alive to try to understand this world conceptually, but these conceptual models are talking about a non-conceptual reality. So, so Vasubandhu converted from a Vaibhashika to a Sautrantika, and later his brother, Asanga, 
was into this new kind of movement, this new Mahayana movement called Yogacara, where they really start questioning the reality of any like a material world at all. And uh, eventually, Asubandhu is kind of like this genius, I think, really brilliant philosopher, practitioner, scholar. But when he started hearing his brilliant brother's expositions of, well, how can we prove that there is any material world outside of mind? And reasoning about this, he, he then shifted over again and became a Yogacara exponent. So he kind of had these... Vasubhana had these three different tenant systems over his lifetime. Uh, but Vasumitra, historically, we just know that he was a Vabhashika. And, um, but maybe this story that Kazan tells is a kind of conversion story to the Mahayana, to, to a vaster view. But we're almost out of time now, so, <laughs> so maybe we should wait till this afternoon to start that story of Vasumitra. These stories are, these Indian stories in the transmission of light record, especially, are very unusual. Where did they come from? We don't know, but there's a, there's a kind of Zen style, Zen flavored awakening story for each Indian ancestor. And then by the time it gets into the Chinese ancestors, these stories were probably pretty much like they're recorded. They may become embellished a little over time, but these meetings and dialogues in this, what we now think of as Zen-style dialogues, probably really was happening like that in China. But that style of dialogue maybe wasn't happening in India, but yet there's these secret stories Zen-style stories of all these Indian ancestors. Started with Shakyamuni Buddha holding up a flower and Mahakashapa smiling. That was the first Zen Dharma transmission, but that story does not appear in the old Indian sutras. It's a kind of it's a Zen story about ancient India. Okay. Yes? So, since you opened up, and this tradition didn't really emerge. This collection of stories didn't, as I understand, really start happening until Kazan. Kazan's the one who collected them and mm -hmm. this. Yeah, but like these Indian ancestor stories were probably happening four or five hundred years before Kazan. I guess my question is: Are we? Are we? Is there this Zen cast that we've? put on these much earlier ways of understanding, seeing, trying to understand our experience of the world, is then sort of retrojecting mm. its awakening, yeah. you know, wake-up yeah. thing, uh -huh. onto people who spend all their time writing these gigantic books yeah. and arguing with each other. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the Zen, Zen, the Zen stories are, are usually pithy and, and simple and direct-pointing and um, not a lot of long, complicated discussions. Some are very strange. They're harder to get than, than reading the whole Mahavibhasha, sometimes, I think. But they're shorter. And yeah, it's a Zen... Uh, we're overlaying a kind of Zen understanding onto this old Indian tradition. 
guys. I don't think that it validates it. It's just... Yeah. I mean, in the stories, like, this could have happened with Vasumitra, but they just thought they were just some weird dialogue he had with his teacher, and they didn't get recorded because they weren't, like, philosophically tight <laughs> conversations, right? So he recorded this long thing of, like, proof of atoms and stuff like that. And uh, the story that we're going to hear is like, maybe he's like, yeah, that happened and that was really cool, but like, I don't know what to say about it. It's, it's, it's not philosophy anymore. So it could be that stories, and probably there were stories that these Indian ancestors casually had with their teachers that they didn't, didn't all get written down. Were they these stories? Maybe not, but uh, could have been. Something like this. There was a Zen style, probably, from beginningless time, of, uh, of um, direct pointing and aha moments and so on. So all these words, there'll be more words this week. Um, while you're listening, and if that's too hard because there's too much content in between listening, uh, you can you can just remember the ground of mind, the um, <clears throat> the zazen that's not doing anything at all, even when we're we humans are doing our thing. <clears throat> 